2: Welcome to the Cynica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com, including Reported stories, editorials, regular columns, and a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I am Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. About a year ago, with the election still months away and with Trump lashing out viciously at Beijing, pulling out all the stops and exhorting every U.S. government agency to just vent its frustrations at China, I was on a Zoom call with numerous people who work on China. Uh, The topic had turned to cold wars and whether we were already in one or were soon going to be in one with China, of course. One participant whom uh, I admire deeply, said that he defined a Cold War as a situation, short of war, of course, in which, for two given nations, the primary organizing principle of each was hostility toward the other. I thought that was a really good, succinct definition, and uh, that— you know by that definition neither you know neither society was you know really organizing itself around hostility to the other and so we weren't in one uh, or were likely to be in one anytime soon surely i was thinking the democrats are going to retake the white house in november and we're going to move further away from that state still Now, uh, five months into the Biden administration, I am frankly pretty saddened and disappointed to find that, if anything, we're actually closer here, at least in the U.S., to a Cold War by that definition. Uh, Competition with China is now invoked constantly by the administration, and while it doesn't always tip into overt hostility— it's hard to miss the subtext. Not long ago on this show, Ryan Haas, who was China director at the NSC uh, during the second Obama administration, lamented the way that competing with China has become a justification, a fix for everything. Uh, he said, it feels like China has become the policy equivalent of duct tape. It's capable of fixing anything. If you have hyperpartisanship partisanship at home, talk about China. If you have transatlantic problems, talk about China. If you need to give NATO purpose, talk about China. He might have added, if you want to get industrial policy through the Senate, talk about China too. Today on Seneca, we're talking about how the ideological dimension of competition is now being foregrounded by the Biden administration and why that's a bad idea. Joining me to discuss are two guests who co-authored a piece for Foreign Affairs about this topic. First, let me introduce to you Tom Papinski, who is Walter F. Lefebvre, Professor of Government at Cornell University, where his focus is on Southeast Asia. Tom, welcome to Seneca. Great to have you.
0: Thanks. It's great to be here.
2: Uh, And I'd also like to welcome back my good friend Jessica Chen Weiss, a professor of government at Cornell University, author of Powerful Patriots, Nationalist Protest in China's Foreign Relations, as well as a political science editor at The Washington Post's Monkey Cage blog. Listeners might remember a couple of summers ago we had Jessica on to talk about her widely read and excellent piece in foreign affairs, Making the World Safe for Autocracy, in which she pushed back against exaggerated claims. That was a weird click in which she pushed back against exaggerated claims about China's global ambitions. Jessica, welcome back.
1: Thanks, Kaiser. It's great to be with you.
2: So let's jump right in and talk about the genesis of this piece in foreign affairs. Uh, What sets you off? I mean, I have a sense of how these things typically come about, and it's usually one person tearing his or her hair out and saying, God damn it, I'm going to write an op-ed, and then reaching out to a logical co-author, someone who's also, maybe they've seen them in the hall, missing a clump of hair also. Is, Is that anything close to how this came about?
0: Yes, that's something how this um, uh, this collaboration started. Um, right, I think Jessica and I are both asked in different ways and for different reasons to comment on the rise of China, its relationships with partners around the uh, around the region, and its implications for U.S. foreign policy. And, Ch- and Jessica and I are also both like Americans who think about the state of American politics and how we ought to compare ourselves to the rest of the world uh, as well. So I think we were both sort of tearing our hair out in... Uh, in slightly different venues about the about what is the right way to conceptualize the rise of China? And what is the strategy that we ought to adopt as Americans in thinking about the United States as a strategic competitor?
1: Yeah, I mean, the piece actually, you know, going back, we actually developed the idea back in the, the Trump administration when, you know, the outgoing administration was really emphasizing almost the existential nature of the threat that China posed. And, you know, we started to, you know, compare notes, you know, Tom's office is just down the hall from mine, and, you know, we really wanted to push back against the idea that, you know, China was, you know, bent on exporting a so-called China model to the world, including uh, Southeast Asia. By the time, you know, the piece actually came out, we were continued to be a little bit concerned that the... Uh, you know, aspects of the Biden administration's rhetoric, particularly the focus on democracy versus autocracy, was in some ways almost validating the claim by some Republicans, you know, such as you know Mitt Romney, that China indeed posed an existential threat uh, to American democracy one we couldn't look away from. Right. You know, we argue that actually it's Republican efforts, you know, to... Overturn the 2020 election to suppress voting rights—that that really constitutes, you know, the existential threat to American democracy. It's really within and not without, um, and so that was, I think, some of the, you know, the ongoing reasons that we felt it was really urgent to make these points.
2: Like I couldn't agree more. Uh, your piece actually opens with references to two speeches made by President Biden. Uh, first, in his late March trip to Pittsburgh, where he kind of unveiled the economic vision uh, for the future, and then second, his mid-June trip, very recent trip to Europe, uh, his first overseas trip as U.S. president, when he tried to reassure allies that you know America is back. Uh, these were totally different audiences, and would one would think you know call for very different speeches and very different substance for a different tone. And yet this China challenge was right up front in both contexts. What do you see as the reason that Biden sees fit to invoke um, this choice between, you know, as you say, autocracy and and democracy-red China? What's
1: he, what's he trying to do here? So I see here the convergence of two things um, in the administration's thinking. One is the real concern, which I share, and I think Tom shares, that democracy in the United States, as well as around the world, is under threat but sure. largely from forces within. The other part uh, where this is coming together is the belief that we need to come and approach our relationship with China from a position of strength, including you know this building back better at home, but also working with allies and partners. And so I think in this messaging, which is delivered here, both in the United States, as well as in conversations with uh, allies across uh, the Atlantic, is that kind of confluence. But we Argue that this is, you know, a potentially uh, misguided or even counterproductive strategy, um, because this binary framing between democracy and, and autocracy makes it harder to find partners abroad. Yeah, yeah. Especially in East Asia and Southeast Asia.
2: And we'll get into exactly why that is. You know, what makes it more difficult. But before we get into the weeds too much, um, maybe it's important that we define. Ideology. I mean, throughout the op-ed, you and Tom give examples of things that don't constitute an ideological threat. You know, the CCP's corrosive effects on free speech, which you talk about very, you know, up front. But these are not uh, necessarily an ideological threat. So what exactly do you mean by ideology and ideological competition? I mean, something short of full-blown export of communist revolution like we saw in the 60s. uh, Is there anything that would still... Qualify as as ideological, and I guess maybe more specifically, is authoritarianism itself an ideology? I mean, there are no serious people who are arguing that Beijing is now promoting its own brand of Marxism Leninism or you know Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for the new era. So, what is this ideology that that the Biden team seems to believe that that Beijing is hell bent on promoting?
0: You know, Kaiser, I think that um, the way that you framed the question actually contains a lot of the answer, specifically with reference to the way that we thought about superpower competition being about democracy versus autocracy or democracy versus communism during the period of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. During that period, I think it was fair to say that um, both the Soviet Union and the United States um, rhetorically promoted a vision of what is the just um, internal structure for governments and what is the proper ordering of the international system around those internal principles. Uh, And so when I think about why does Biden say things like democracy versus autocracy, I think that 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 way of framing the United States versus versus its competitor or opponent or rival, just it makes sense. But it's actually not contentful when we think about the way that China approaches foreign policy and promotion of its interests. So if I were to define uh, ideology, I would think of it in terms of that Alignment between a sort of morally just um, internal structuring for uh, for uh, particular states and its relationship to an external world world order. I do think that many in the United States, and I include, I'm included in this. I have an ideology of democracy for myself. I'm I'm, I'm not sure how to export that or whether or not that's appropriate. <laughs> but the but the idea is certainly that I, I I would I would confess open readily that this is my own way of thinking. The, the error is in imagining that the, that the other thinks the same way in reverse, that because I have a ideology of democracy that I hold for myself and I, in principle, think is universally a- applicable, that there exists a coherent mirror image version of that that comes from China and it can be exported in the same way. And so, in, at least in my experience, looking at Chinese relations with Southeast Asia, the notion of an ideological project simply isn't there. It's based on interests and uh, and sort of pragmatic efforts to achieve um, foreign policy goals.
2: So, staying big big picture here for a second, I mean, in my many years in China, I have engaged with you know countless Chinese intellectuals in discussions of authoritarianism, and I mean, my sense is I mean, just as you said, it's 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 not uh, that they have a. Program that they believe to be universally applicable. It's it, it's that it's a rejection of the idea that Western ideas, so-called Western ideas of democracy, are universally applicable. They're, they're challenging that applicability, and it's not that that they're challenging it in an absolute sense. There's there's this sort of, you know, cultural relativism that's always part of that of that explanation. So you see this sort of d- passive defense. It's not an active one. There's this tacit acceptance that of some version of modernization theory, really. This idea that, you know, authoritarianism is, it's, it's held up as, you know, not so much a positive good as an expedient, uh, the only choice for a country that is still burdened by a really large population, by low levels of education, by, you know, an underdeveloped political culture, low levels of civic virtue, low levels of, of, of societal trust, and, and these sorts of things. And and we've seen this in China. I mean, Jessica, as you, you certainly know, you know, from way back, from the early Chinese liberals and, you know, Sun Yat-sen's ideas about a, a tutelage period that we're supposed to, you know, pass through before full democracy can be realized. And it, it's amazing. I mean, I, I still see this all the time. This kind of, it's kind of uh, whiggish and logical. this idea that, you know, there's, it's kind of a national development version of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Uh, where people, you know, once they have their basic needs met, they start naturally aspiring to, you know, higher political needs that culminate, I guess, ultimately in kind of liberal, um, multi-party electoral democracy. I mean, it, Jessica, I'm sure this is something you've encountered. I mean, that the, the apologetics for authoritarianism, I mean, while they may be objectionable to some people, I don't wouldn't construe them as like active promotion of authoritarianism.
1: So what I see, you know, coming from China is an effort to push back against, uh, you know, a Western-defined uh, universal definition of what constitutes democracy. Right. And you see it in, you know, the recent essay by uh, Yan shih uh, in foreign affairs, you oh, see Oh, exactly. It I was going to talk about that. Yeah. You also see it in Zhang Weiwei's you know, recent interview that he did uh, with Chinese language media. Zhang Weiwei was recently featured at the Politburo study session on you know, in China's international communications and propaganda strategy, where, you know, they're saying that you know Western discourse is essentially you know confined and ultimately found you know China's you know political model of governance wanting, based you know not up to up to par. And what they are trying to do in these pieces, which I think reflects the CCP's own thinking, is the idea that, you know, China is going to take and change that notion of democracy so that China too can claim to be democratic. Right. You know, we may not agree with that. But nonetheless, I think it reflects a desire to, you know, use ideology a little bit more flexibly and 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 chiefly to push back against the sort of one-size-fits-all kind of sense that democracy lies at the end of history, which is uh, threatening uh, to the CCP as it seeks to continue its, you know, increasingly personalist one-party rule.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So when
1: I say... You know when you say okay what how do we mean what do we mean by ideology here?" when we say you know the United States should avoid elevating ideology in u s china relations it's it's not to say that ideology is going to go away. Ideology exists out there. It's just that we should be a little bit less rigid and placing it at the center of our strategy for dealing with China recognizing that these differences in regime type or differences in the kinds of ways in which we want to define democracy or China will continue to aspire to upholding socialism with Chinese characteristics, those will be there. Um, and they you know, are fundamental domestic uh, differences and preferences. But making them the centerpiece of the competition, I think, is likely to inflame this source of mutual insecurity uh, yeah. In the ideological realm, and it is going to make it harder, as we as Tom just noted uh, for the United States to work with uh, a variety of different countries uh, around the world as it seeks to you know push back against some of the behaviors that uh, we find most objectionable because for
2: people in a lot of those other countries you know I and mean, it's really it 's not just Chinese people who find these ideas compelling that there are you know, economic conditions or social or educational conditions that kind of need to be met before a transition to democracy is possible. But here in the United States, I mean, we we don't engage with that idea anymore. In fact, I think, you know, we, we, caricature it. It's now a kind of a punchline, Asian values, you know, from the, the 90s. Um, and, you know, this is something, Tom, you must certainly encounter in your you know studies in Southeast Asia, people who hold to these ideas. The Singaporeans, obviously, were, were big progenitors of, of the Asian values thing. But um, now, you know, it's it's dismissed as um, a kind of racism of low expectations, you know. oh, uh, But there's this immediate assumption, I think, that anyone who's claiming this, who, who was making these arguments, is assuming that these, you know, these cultural or sociological impediments to democracy are immutable. You know, that like not ready for democracy means like never ready for or incapable of democracy. I just don't hear people making that argument um, at, at all. Tom, I, let's let's hear the, the the view from Southeast Asia. I mean, there are examples of democratic countries there, Indonesia and the Philippines. Uh, they're flawed, flawed democracies. But what is the state of discourse on this? I mean, because this this surely is on the minds of people as they're looking at this burgeoning ideological conflict and you know pitting authoritarianism against democracy in the American telling.
0: That's right. Um, what's interesting to me is that uh, is the way that the Asian values. Debate or discourse it ebbs and flows over time so it was big in the 90s it was out in the 2000s it came back in the 2010s I think we're seeing a little bit of it right now but that you know I think I agree with your uh, with your implicit perspective that the 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 source of the notion that these values are distinctively Asian is not Asians it's probably the West right it's the this is the idea that Asian values can be summarized usefully as Asian in some particular way. Right. within within Southeast Asia i I don't encounter anyone making an argument about the propriety of uh, liberal democratic forms for national communities based on a common Asian heritage or anything like this it's it's individualized to the country right it's oftentimes expressed in stark opposition not only to the United States and uh, say Australia, which is the other relevant partner there, but also to China itself. So the right. the distinctive feature of Indonesia is not just that it's not a liberal democracy, but it's also understood to have a very different political culture than China itself. And so the the notion that there's an open channel through which a discourse about Chinese socialism with Chinese characteristics could be translated to Indonesia um, or the Philippines, much less to a a, a harder authoritarian regime like, um, say, Thailand, or Vietnam's just that's not how it would work. What there is perhaps is a, uh, a notion of national characteristics, being important features of how countries go ahead and embrace democracy on their own terms. So you can hear about, say, what's often called Thai style democracy, which is a a version of politics, which is not very democratic by my standards. Or you can hear in Indonesia, the notion of Panchasila democracy, which is supposed to reflect the diversity and essential character of, of the Indonesian people. But these are all interesting things to talk about in a national sense. But the, I, I, I just think it's, it's almost ludicrous to imagine that China, qua China, could use its own experience, uh, its own cultural characteristics or values as an argument for spreading China's model to somewhere else.
2: I've often joked in the past I mean half joked that you know America and China both have their own uh, versions of exceptionalism America's posits that American values and institutions are true for all time and true for all peoples and they're universal where China's equally arrogantly they they claim to them to be so you know uniquely predicated on the Chinese uh, historical experience and on Chinese, you know, civilizational qualities that they're, they're not really relevant to anyone else. Anyway, I mean, Tommy, so obviously your area of concentration is Southeast Asia in, in uh, the foreign affairs piece, you look at China's relations with, I think it was like six different countries of the region, just to make the point that China's foreign policy is, more or less ideologically agnostic when it comes to dealing with these these countries, if I'm not mischaracterizing you. So you look at Vietnam, Malaysia, the Philippines, um, Burma, Cambodia. Can you walk us through these really quick uh, and show how you know Beijing's conduct is, as you describe it, mostly transactional
0: and coercive
2: and not ideological?
0: Sure. Um, so when I think about uh, the the image of Chinese ideological expansionism or a sort of a Chinese effort to spread authoritarianism based on the Chinese model to other places. What I would look for is um, evidence of China having, um, a, you know, displaying favoritism for certain types of countries, being easier to to form common strategic uh, uh, alliances with countries that have similar political forms, um, or even discourse made in this way, and so, as you walk through the cases in Southeast Asia, the nature of Chinese bilateral relations with each of them is totally uncorrelated with that with that expectation the right. country the country that is closest to China in institutional form and ideological background and structure is vietnam, and yeah, not only have chinese yeah. yeah not only have China and Vietnam fought a war within my lifetime, the nature of Sino-Vietnamese relationships is fundamentally determined not by the commonality of their of their founding moments, but rather by their concerns over competition over regional influence in the, you know, South China, East Vietnam Sea, but over a host of other things as well. China finds it easiest to work with countries that don't share much of its political form at all. Um hmm. Duterte. Is not a Chinese socialist. Um, he's not a Marxist Leninist. He's he's more leftist than people understand. But the nature of that bilateral relationship is is merely because Duterte shares common particular interests in regional architecture with China. Likewise with Cambodia. Cambodia is a sort of single party authoritarian regime. Hun Sen has some of the strongman characteristics that I understand Xi Jinping to have. But these are not countries that have an alliance based on the fact that they share a socialist history and, or Marxist history in some form. Rather, it's you should understand this as like a kind of geostrategic and historical alliance that long predates, it goes back to sort of Khmer Empire with its counterpart in what is today China versus various empires in Vietnam and should be understood as such. Vietnam during the Cold War was, was a closer partner with the Soviet Union, so the Sino-Soviet split translates in Southeast Asia to a Vietnam-Cambodia split. Yeah, and then when it comes yeah. to cases like uh, we can talk more. I, I won't go on at length about Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, but people make a lot of hay of the about the relationships between Singapore and uh, and the CCP, the the People's Action Party and the CCP. And there is something there. It's often talked about as something having to do with Chinese or Confucian cultural values. But that's the only country in the region, or the deeply technocratic nature of, the, of those
2: two regimes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. But that's the only plausible country in the region in which that would be possible to say. Right, right, right. Um, that's not going to externalize to, to Malaysia uh, or Indonesia in any meaningful way.
2: And, and Tom, how do the various nations of the region of Southeast Asia see uh, this Sino-American competition? I mean, are they worried about being forced to choose? Or do some perhaps see like, this custody battle you know, between their two parent states as an opportunity to extract concessions from both, as like, well, many of my friends did from their divorcing parents, play <laughs> <them off> is... <laughs> against each other? <laughs>
0: That's a great question again it 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 depends entirely on on the country that we 're talking about. Vietnam has found it very convenient to to partner with the United States on issues of common interests I mean I think that that, that relationship is going to strengthen over time yeah. um, for, for for various and very obvious reasons I and mean, then you can contrast that to a country like Indonesia, which conceives of itself in non aligned terms still you know it 's never been a treaty ally of the United States it was a founding member of the non-aligned movement back in the day you'll remember the famous Bandung Bandung. Conference of uh, 55. Even though the days of Sukarno are long past, Indonesia has in various ways, a foreign policy, which is often described by the terms Bebas Aktif, which means free and active. So unaligned, uh, partnering on issues of concern, but not fundamentally driven uh, by uh, either an alliance with the West or with China.
2: See, so you guys, that's great. I mean, that's a, a fantastic tour of the region and I think that that it's a, a perfect region to illustrate that point. Jessica, you're laughing. What's
1: <laughs> I was just giving Tom a thumbs up. That was great. It's more than it was we had no space in the little in this piece for that detail. I think it's fantastic.
2: That's why we do this this podcast. I mean, and and here we go with another. Jessica, lots of bad things come from casting the U.S.-China relationship as an ideological contest, but I mean, one that is very top of mind for me, and I suppose for you, too, just given, you know, that we're both ethnically Chinese. Uh, Quoting your op-ed here, I mean, no matter how carefully the administration differentiates between the Chinese government and people of Chinese ethnicity, this good versus evil rhetoric creates a permissive environment for xenophobia, anti-Asian racism, and violence against anyone perceived as foreign— a- amen to that, I say. I mean, but when I, I brought, brought this up, I have I've brought this up many times. When I've suggested that this wave of xenophobia has been a contributing factor in the uptake in, in um, you know hate crime against these Asians, which to me is just sort of obvious and a no-brainer thing, I get attacked for allegedly you know carrying water for the Chinese Communist Party. I'm told that I'm just repeating a CCP talking point. What do you guys say to that allegation, which I'm sure you've heard as well?
1: Mm. One of the features of China's increasingly, you know, aggressive uh, so-called wolf warrior diplomacy is that it's amplifying real domestic criticism. Um, And that doesn't mean we should shy away from uh, making those concerns heard. And, you know, most of our essay, I, I would say, is based upon my academic analysis. But this point is really quite personal. So, you know, as the daughter of Chinese as well as, you know, a couple generations ago, Jewish immigrants, I'm really concerned about what this kind of binary framing uh, and confrontation, especially against Chinese influence, does to our society um, at home. Because Nobody agrees on how to defend democracy at home, but it's quite easy to overreact to the specter of Chinese influence, um, not only abroad, but right here in our society. So it's, uh, you know, it's programs like the China Initiative that the Trump administration launched. I know you've talked to Maggie Lewis uh, not too long ago, as well as continued calls for a whole of society response to the threat from China. This really creates a cloud of suspicion over Chinese and Chinese Americans. That's and correct. so, you know, even my mother who, you know, moved here in the late 60s, you know, doesn't want to walk around the streets of Pittsburgh or Seattle for fear of being attacked. And I want to add that it's not just Asian Americans, you know, even international relations scholars like, you know, Charlie Glazer can't be write an essay in foreign affairs contemplating how to avoid war over Taiwan without being called un-American. And so this, too, I think, is, you know, this is the fabric of our democracy. You know, even when we disagree, we need to defend and protect uh, the right of one another to disagree. So, you know, as I wrote with Ali Wine, we need to be very careful not to uh, out-China-China, where we sacrifice, you know, our greatest strengths, our openness, our dynamism, Um, even our potential global appeal in the name of countering uh, or competing with China. And I say this is particularly, this is not just sort of a lofty goal, but this is also, I think, politically important because a climate where voices of moderation, calls for tolerance are automatically suspect, that doesn't make for a healthy democracy and it doesn't make for good policy. And ultimately, it will make it harder for centrist leaders, including President Biden, to win the day.
0: I was going to say, I mean, on this point, I don't know how we know that that is true or false, but certainly it's plausible. And the yeah. Chinese are, are, quite, are quite correct to diagnose the rise in anti-Asian-American violence and rhetoric in the United States. And if we can't see it, then we, we, we need them to tell us. That's right. That's right.
1: Or I would just say that our comparative strength is being able to, you know, course correct here at home. Um, and that's something that they're, you know, have been shown less able to do. Sure.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's the whole thing. It's just this what you, you flicked at earlier, just this faltering confidence. It's just it's not attractive. It does not look like we are speaking from strength, you know. And, you know, the other thing that you talked about, is this mirroring tendency that we, we tend to see in Cold Wars where we seem to adopt the worst features of the other side. Um, and that, that's really distressing to me. So, um, Jessica, you you described in the quote that I, I just read, uh, kind of Manichaean good versus evil framing here. Um, I don't think that is uniquely American necessarily, to you know, to want to cast ideological contests as, as kind of totalistic, including moral ones. But I suspect that in doing so, um, we or, you know, pretty much any other state tends to want some kind of a moral basis for ideological mobilization. And, you know, it's one that in, in the American context can resonate, you know, on both sides of the political spectrum, uh, both ends of the spectrum. Has the U.S. found that moral basis in uh, the repression, which a growing number of countries are calling genocide in Xinjiang? Does it, how how much of a factor has this been in the ability to, uh, to cast this as a, a grand ideological moral contest? So it seems to me it's, it's one of the, the main features of of our of our of the American position now.
1: So I see a lot of you know transatlantic support uh, for the U.S. position in calling out what's happening in Xinjiang and in Hong Kong and you know the specter of you know Chinese military uh, aggression across the Taiwan Strait. But I I will say that across the developing world, it doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, such a point of of unity. And so when you have, you know, dueling statements uh, on Xinjiang, or China's human rights at the United Nations, for example, you know, China's mobilizing more countries uh, behind its stance than than is the United States. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's It's easy, maybe sometimes, to conflate human rights and democracy versus autocracy, but they think that those are different things. Um, One could speak up for human rights and and condemn human rights abuses without necessarily making this a grand contest between democracy and autocracy. In fact, one of the points of our piece is that we ought to emphasize good governance, uh, you know, rather than this this binary. Um, And it's something where you know even autocracies can perform better and worse. And if anything, what the United States ought to hope for and Try to work toward is a you know a CCP that kind of returns to some of the more I mean I this is like in, in relative terms you know less uh, you know the the less forcibly assimilating you know ethnic minorities and repressing of um, you know different forms of civil society uh, you know to where the, the CCP itself was you know um, you twenty know, years ago yeah. 20, 15, 15, 15 years, years ago, ago yeah. yeah
2: absolutely no I couldn't agree with you more. Tom, what, what about in, you know, your, the region that you, you study contains the world's largest Muslim majority country, uh, you know, the largest population of Muslims uh, in the mm-hmm. world, Indonesia, of course. Uh, what is the, your explanation for the sort of lack of, of very vocal response to the, the Uyghur atrocity?
0: So there's a couple of things going on, but it's a fantastic question. And this is this is I think a sign of if you're work, looking for examples of where Chinese messaging and Chinese foreign policy influence has been successful, it's in tamping down uh, commentary on the on the on the what I consider to be a genocide uh, of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, not only in Indonesia but in other countries like uh, uh, like Malaysia, like Turkey even. The way that this happens is It's a combination of messaging, it's a combination of elite management, and recognizing Indonesia's own delicate position on on this sort of question. So the Indonesian government has organized travel trips for Indonesian political elites, and Muslim elites in particular, to go to Xinjiang on on sort of self-contained tours uh, designed to reveal something other than the harsh repression experience by the people who, who live there. And the notion here, which is successful, is that these elites can come back to Indonesia and and report that there is nothing to be concerned about or to say that, you know, it suffices if they can say it's more complicated than simply a question of repression or uh, or, or cultural extermination, or something like this. Right, right. This also resonates, though, because countries like Indonesia have their own minority problems. They have their own sure. small populations that uh, that don't fit neatly into the national narrative that they view as as foreign threats. Um, I mean, Indone- in Indonesia, most notably right now, this is the people of uh, of West Papua uh of, oh, right. sure. west so, so west papua is a better example because um indonesians view Aceh in many senses as kind of like the most indonesian place uh i saw this firsthand after the boxing day tsunami whereas they conceive of uh, the people of of west papua is uh as as almost primitive subhuman yeah pagans um, right right yeah right. and uh, and racially inferior um sure. so uh and the the condition of West Papua is not as dire as the condition of the Uyghurs, but they will never Indonesia will never let that go, and they will never tolerate any criticism by any other country of the occupation of West Papua. And so that's the that is the the similar domestic foreign right. policy problem that that China is able to to access there.
2: Fascinating, fascinating. So, you guys, in in March, we all got to look at the interim national security strategic guidance, uh, which, in case you're wondering mentions China 16 times and all in contexts like growing rivalry with China, a more assertive China, holding China to account, China seeking unfair advantage, supporting China's neighbors against Chinese aggression, uh, upholding American values and doing, you know, in business dealings with China. Uh, A couple of desultory mentions of working with China, only when it's, of course, in the American national interest to do so. Russia, by the way, only gets five mentions, and most of them are alongside China in that new kind of Russia and China kind of blend. Um, It's feeling more and more like the emerging U.S. grand strategy consists of not much more than let's beat China, let's win against China. And it's sounding like for the U.S. at least, this is the new organizing principle, which, you know, given that definition of a Cold War that I talked about earlier, frankly, scares the shit out of me. much of this American debate, I think it comes down to arguments of what Beijing actually wants, about right-sizing China's actual ambitions. And Jessica, you have been in the forefront of this conversation, and the way that you framed it a couple of years ago, you know, making the world safer autocracy, has found, you know, purchase with a lot of people. Uh, Ye- Ye- Tung, who we, we talked about earlier, who is uh, the, the dean of the Institute of uh, International Studies at Tsinghua, said something similar in his essay in the latest issue of foreign affairs uh that for for beijing the ideological contest is about you know discrediting claims to universality like we we talked about and it's not advancing china's own values so in the past jessica you've described it as advertising an option rather than pushing a particular system or, or, or approach. Have your assessments of Beijing's ambitions in the last couple of years since that Foreign Affairs article came out, have they changed at all? Have you have you given have you had any reason to rethink what you were originally saying? What what's the closest maybe that China has actually come to promoting authoritarianism or, you know, proactively advocating for, you know, a given country to actually reject electoral democracy and instead embrace, you know, a one party system?
1: So I, first of all, I still stand behind what I wrote uh, in that article. My thinking yeah. hasn't really changed, but I think that the emphasis is that many put um, on sort of the China's authoritarian influence, some people refer to any sort of uh, illiberal influence that China is having uh, in the international order as being the export of a model. And so I think if I were to if i were to describe this today i would state that those sort of negative influences are you know have become more prominent in the sense that china is clearly seeking to play a more active role in pushing back against the idea that the united states and you know a handful of liberal democracies can be the arbiters of international order. You see this in repeated Chinese official statements about how this is sort of a minority view uh, and you know the international order that China defends is the one that's centered on the UN system. Um, and so it's we're beginning to see this sort of bifurcation or this sort of clash between two different ideas about international order, where China's view and what it's trying to do with the United Nations is more illiberal. It is trying to, you know, weaken the role or marginalize, you know, the role of the so-called universal values or the individual uh, political rights, uh, and instead elevate, you know, state sovereignty and non-interference, you know, um, at the center of that vision. But ultimately, you know, the way I see it is that, you know, China is perhaps best described as a disgruntled stakeholder. It is in some ways, A staunch defender of the status quo, right, the UN charter and the principle of non-interference, at least rhetorically, although we can talk about the ways in which China's own behavior and trying to shore up regime security and violate that uh, non-interference, what we call in the essay, sort of extrusions of sharp power to intimidate uh, criticism of the CCP around the world. In other areas, you know, China is more of a revisionist and and even a free rider in other areas where it's, you know, less important to the Chinese Communist Party's domestic rule, so so summing up, you know, this variation in, in China's behavior toward the international order, uh, you know, isn't just captured in the idea of a world safer autocracy. There's a lot more, uh, if you will, nuance. I know that can be a bad word in some circles. Not in mine. <laughs> but there's a lot more variation. Uh, in you know, in how China you know is approaching its the existing rules of the system, um, and so you know casting China as purely a revisionist as the you know the, the Trump administration's national security strategies suggested, I think is is too simplistic, and in fact you know uh, it could set us up for a devastating uh, confrontation. So in that sense, I think that the interim you know national security guidance uh, you know is a modification, is a moderation away from that. I think we still need to see now you know, where the Biden administration uh, will take things, Um, whether it will indeed, you know, of course, China is a big challenge, but that doesn't mean that the United States needs to put, you know, competing with China at the center of uh, its national security strategy. That could be one component of a broader, uh, more affirmative vision for renewing democracy at home, and solving global challenges around the world. And that's my hope that RSA, but also other pieces recently that have come out, uh, begin to to push in that direction.
2: I like that, disgruntled shareholder, stakeholder. And, I mean, sort of an activist shareholder who's kind of leading this little kind of uh, rebellion uh, against the board, but doesn't want, maybe wants to change the chairman, uh, but does not want to run the company itself. <laughs> maybe that's a a, a good neoliberal uh, analogy. So. <laughs> Do you think that Beijing sees this now? Does it view things as an emerging ideological contest? I mean, you you spent, Jessica, you spent a lot of time looking at party pronouncements and speeches. I mean, is it your sense now that Beijing also casts the contest in terms of ideology? Or is this something that it's careful not to do, lest it lose the ability to blame Washington for making it all about ideology? Mm
1: -hmm. So there's no question that the CCP is ideologically insecure, and it has long seen uh, the CCP as under siege from, uh, you know, hostile uh, ideology from the West that sees, again, democracy as lying at the end of history. Um, But the CCP also, I think, uh, is cognizant that a direct engagement in putting ideology at the forefront of, uh, you know, contention between the United States and China is is unlikely to, you know, work in the CCP's favor. Um, You had actually uh, Yan Xiechong say this uh, outright uh, in his, you know, brand new foreign affairs essay, and that, you know, that recognition that there is this belief in in Chinese exceptionalism, that there aren't going to be many others that want to follow China's um, domestic political model. Right. And not many that well, really can copy China's uh, economic success. So I think that the CCP is, uh, you know, very aware that this is becoming or has become under the Trump administration in this early phase of the Biden administration, you know, a real uh, focus um, of contention. But it, I don't think that it feels that that is inevitably the grounds on which, um, you know, this... Competition uh, needs to be waged, and there are different ways of thinking about ideological competition. That you know, for example, uh, Wang Jisa in his foreign affairs essay, and echoing something that he said in the past, that a more benign form of this competition is a competition over which system can perform better on its own terms domestically, in terms of providing yeah. for people. Yeah. Um, if you have a contest. Uh, a beauty contest, if you will. That's a very different kind of a contest than one where you condition cooperation uh, with allies and partners uh, along kind of rigid ideological lines.
2: Right. It's a race to the top contest. Exactly. And we'll talk about uh, that Wang Jisi Piece in a little bit, Tom. I want to go back to you. You guys argue succinctly, and you looked at this earlier. That U.S. grand strategy that's based around confronting authoritarianism could backfire. Uh, you you say at first it could provoke China to actually escalate on the ideological front. Jessica talked about that, uh, but it could also push other countries closer to China who don't want to make that choice and feel you know more comfortable. Uh, going along with Beijing's no strings attached assistance and so forth, can you go a little deeper into your concerns? What kinds of scenarios do you see where these sorts of things might happen, where an ideological framing could actually goad Beijing into either getting more ideologically assertive or goad other countries into actually, you know, forced to choose choosing Beijing?
0: That's a that's a great question. It forces us to speculate just a little bit um, because we're I don't think we're there yet. Fortunately, in terms of we haven't we haven't pushed China that quite that far. Uh, or um uh, on 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 the question of direct challenges to the chinese ideological model or constructing right. it as an export of a, of authoritarianism so i think that this is most likely in cases of strategically important third country partners who's who for for whatever particular reason have important roles to play I think in issues of U.S. interest. I'll use the example of Cambodia because it's a it's it's an important one. Um, as I mentioned before, I don't think that there's any particular export of a China a Chinese model to Cambodia at right now, uh, happening right now. But it you, you can um you can imagine a moment in which the United States, if attacking China and Cambodia for the similar general problem of the absence of a competitive democratic system. Creates greater alliance or greater sense of common interest between those two countries. So that's directly contrary to U.S. interests. Cambodia is a small country, fairly poor, but a veto player on every issue that ASEAN could be part of. And uh, I think, in most interpretations, that's because of its of its understanding of what of its bilateral relationship with China. So, so holding aside that, I think though the the um, the general challenge that a values first foreign policy has is that values are so sometimes hard to achieve. It's hard to, to implement them in the short term. But money talks, and it can be freeing to not have a values-based foreign policy. So in cases, not just Cambodia, but we can think more broadly, in cases around the region and beyond Southeast Asia, what China offers is no-strings-attached development assistance on issues right. that, which is a thing that countries want. And I think that's the... Uh, I think a clear-eyed understanding of that as the as the true mechanism of Chinese influence um, in third-country partners is more. It's much more helpful for helping to imagine what a proper response to that would be than casting that as something about an alliance of dictatorships or uh, a commonality of autocracies.
2: At the uh, recently concluded G7 meeting, uh, there's this new idea now that that the uh, U.S. and its Western democratic allies are going to team up to offer something you know, comparable to China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, do you see this as a, a healthier form, more of a race to the top kind of competition than the ideological competition that you've decried in this piece?
0: Well, you know, so I, I'm of two minds about it. On the one hand, I do think it's, it's likely to yield better results than talking first and foremost about ideology and values, which I don't think any American administration in the foreign policy space is very credible about anyway. Um, so, so I think it's a it's more realistic. But but the other thing that I'd emphasize is that whatever the, the benefits of that sort of approach to development partnerships with the rest of the world, most important or more important than that, I think, is correctly understanding the alternative that is being offered by China, which, again, is we don't have to become China or we don't have to adopt the mirror image of their strategy towards engaging with uh with developing countries around the world in order to understand that what the strategy they're following actually is and how it's supposed to work.
2: Yeah, couldn't agree more. So Jessica, in that same issue where, you know, we've, we've talked about, you know, Wang Qisi had this essay. So he's the president of the Institute of International Studies at Peking University. Uh, he His piece focused on uh, this Chinese perception that the U.S. has sort of reawoken deeper, older sources of antagonism, as he puts it. He writes... In Chinese eyes, the most significant threat to China's sovereignty and national security has long been U.S. interference in its internal affairs aimed at changing the country's political system and undermining the CCP. And then he goes on to invoke a litany of, I think that are, you know, all familiar to, 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 to all of us, a litany of alleged American perfidy, like, you know, ensuring somehow that Liu Xiaobo was given the uh, Nobel Peace Prize or, you know, encouraging and funding color revolutions or Arab Spring like you know, uprisings and meddling in uh, the peripheral areas in Xinjiang and in Tibet, in Taiwan and in Hong Kong, encouraging the splitists. I mean, anyone who reads China's media, um, you know, is familiar with these things. But uh, he's very careful, I should add, that uh, these are subjective, you know, Chinese perceptions. And they're not a truth, as he sees it. And I think he's he's pretty clear uh, that a lot of this is is just conspiratorial thinking or just straight up paranoia Uh, but at the same time uh, he clearly thinks as as i do uh that we do need to be aware of these perceptions and and you know he cautions like you guys do against inflaming chinese nationalism so i want to ask i mean are u.s policymakers oblivious to to what the view out beijing's window is do they just dismiss it simply as paranoia and feel like no need to address it uh are they uh you know unable to imagine like for example just in the last year and a half during the pandemic what things have looked like from Beijing's window as you know our conversation about this happens out in the open they hear every crazy thing that Tom Cotton says and every crazy thing that came out of Trump's mouth and every gratuitous insult um they see you know the revival of this lab leak theory and stuff like that and they're they're, they're they they know what's going on you know what what is wrong with us why are we unable to to exercise a little goddamn cognitive empathy here
1: Oh, that's a tough question, Kaiser. because <laughs> I don't think that I don't think that there's quite so there's a whole lot of variation, I think, in the attention to domestic audiences inside of China and how u s. policy statements are registering uh, inside, and whether or not this, you know, paranoia is, in fact, paranoia or grounded in some kernel of truth, which is that for, you know, a long time, the United States has hoped that the the Chinese regime uh, would change and and become more democratic. So, you know, there are those, you know, in the United States that, in fact, do want to see the CCP fall. Um, I don't think that regime change is, uh, you know, core to the Biden administration's strategy, such as we can tell so far. But there is, uh, you know, an equal, I think, belief that We need to stand up for, you know, the rights of individuals around the world. Um, And so that leads to, you know, strong words as well as actions increasingly, including sanctions uh, on those, you know, seen as violating uh, those, um, you know, fundamental human rights. And so it is, I think, those actions are taken more from the perspective of, uh, you know, U.S. domestic political values as well as um, you know, what's politically necessary in, than an, with an eye to how these are being viewed inside China. Yeah, And so I do think that it is important to recognize that efforts that the United States takes to put more pressure on the CCP, especially in the areas that they have defined as their, you know, so-called core interests, are ones in which international pressure is more likely to backfire. Um, by stoking uh, Chinese nationalism, and by separately um potentially provoking uh, more aggressive or disruptive. Chinese government actions abroad. That could take a couple of different forms. It could be that they, you know, engage in this kind of wholesale ideological evangelism, converting others to authoritarianism or to, to socialism with Chinese characteristics. But perhaps more likely, and I think what we're already seeing, is uh, efforts to go uh, on the negative, uh, to disparage and diminish other countries' forms of Governance, liberal democracies in particular, um, as being as bad or worse uh, than China's own performance, and so that's what we've been seeing. I think over the last you know year plus, uh, now often referred to as wolf warrior uh, diplomacy.
2: Yeah, I sure as hell wish that China would stop stoking American nationalism too. <laughs> absolutely, we're I mean, that's, seeing that's a, a really absolutely foolish, you know, yeah.
1: ugly development in Chinese diplomacy.
2: So, you know, you guys, when, when when I talk to people who, especially people who worked hard, like, you know, I, I did. I did a lot of phone making and stuff to get Joe Biden elected. Uh, when I have shared my disappointment in, in some of the rhetoric that's come out of, 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 of the NSC or the State Department around China, I often hear some version of, well, they're probably back channeling very different messages to Beijing. And the rhetoric is, you know, it's politically expedient in this, you know, terribly polarized political environment that we're in. And uh Beijing kind of probably gets that. I mean, assuming that's true, and yeah, that'd be a huge assumption, would that allay your concerns at all? I mean, do you think that th- that is true, first of all? I mean, is, is is there any indication to suggest that there is that kind of back channeling happening?
1: I hear the same reports as you do that, you know, what we hear, for example, about the public versus private discussion that took place in Anchorage was yeah, quite exactly different. What I had in mind. At yeah. the same time, you know, the audience for U.S. public diplomacy is includes the Chinese, you know, public and, you know, elites. And so, uh, you know, even if there is this kind of short-term kind of pragmatic disconnect, I don't think that it is healthy for the overall prospects for avoiding an all-out confrontation if in public there is no sense that cooperative or competitive coexistence uh, is possible. Right now we're seeing... I think that sort of adversarial tendency become a lot more uh, prominent than any kind of uh, cooperation. I think it's having costs for our ability to make progress on things like, you know, climate change.
2: Okay, so like one last question for both of you here uh, before we move to recommendations, and and that's this. So Wang Jisi cites American neuralgia and anxiety uh, in diagnosing, uh, you know, what's happening in the United States in response to China's rise. And uh, that is running up against, you know, on, on the Chinese side, a lot of confidence and pride. I would say hubris at times in, you know, in China's accomplishments. Uh, from where I sit, it's hard for me to say these wrong. I mean, neuralgia and anxiety seems to be everywhere. But um, do either of you have a deeper diagnosis when it comes to why so many Americans at this moment in time seem so eager to embrace an idea of China that is just so much more antagonistic They express this apparently quite deep animosity toward China?
1: Well, I'd say that there are a number of factors at work here. You know, first is structural. You know, China is becoming richer and more powerful. That kind of gap is closing. So China seems more like a challenge. It is a challenge to, you know, American preponderance, um, a luxury that we've enjoyed for decades. The second is, I think, very real insecurities about our own democracy and its ability to deliver Right, the kind of gridlock, under the you know Obama years, followed by Trump, followed by the January sixth insurrection, uh, you know, followed by ongoing Republican efforts uh, to really, I think, neuter our democracy. Our having couldn't you
2: get a closer vote on a voting rights bill. My God,
1: yeah. right? Or a commission to investigate what happened. So you know, those there is a real anxiety there um, that our system is not working all that well. And so you have, you know, comedians like Bill Maher saying, you know, China can build high-speed rail in, like, a snap of the fingers. And, you know, here we are, you know, how many years later? So, you know, it it makes for an easy foil that doesn't, um, that I think tends to, you know, to hyperbole and doesn't necessarily grapple with, you know, first the challenges that that China faces, Uh, but also, you know, the shared problems that both countries, I think, need to navigate.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. Very well said.
0: The only thing I'd add to that, perhaps, is um, is I think that when you go outside of the realm of elite politics and you think about you know the ordinary American or the the, the modal American, the typical American's perception of China is it's entirely ungrounded in fact or reality. Um, yeah. And and this isn't something that's designed to. To insult Americans, I myself don't know very much about China either, and would not be a faithful interpreter of China's, you know, foreign policy behavior unless it were my job to work with people like Jessica to help me learn about it. And so it's very easy in a moment of uncertainty, and it's also, you know, I think it's consistent with uh, probably hundreds of years of the way that Westerners have conceived of China, is to imagine it like as a, in you know, without factual basis as a as a as a place which is different, which is exotic, which is in some sense threatening, which is in some sense problematic, but without without any concrete reason to suspect that other than it's unknown. I wouldn't underestimate the, the role that this plays in the American psyche. Yeah.
1: And I will also say I you know, that what news that Americans do hear about China um is really bad. Things are going badly in China from the perspective of things that Americans care about, you know, like political rights, uh, you know, tolerance for, you know, different, you know, forms of religious practice, minority expression. Like, that's an objective fact. And so um, it's, I think, hard to escape these, you know, sort of structural as as well as kind of more value-based tensions um, that are making it really easy to caricature
2: uh, China, right, right, right. I think that there's, yeah, there's, you know, that's that's the the really frustrating thing is that China is just not helping its its cause in in any meaningful way with, with uh, with this. It makes my job as somebody who's really you know kind of trying to urge calm a whole lot more difficult. Anyway, um, you know, in, uh, my my take on this is that China has just year after year just knocked out these kind of load-bearing walls of American exceptionalism, we, we, keep, we keep sort of defying these things that we believed sort of axiomatically to be true about the relationship between capitalism and democracy, about the relationship between freedom and innovation, about the relationship between, you know, technology and, um, you know, uh, and liberation. You know, we, we, it, it keeps forcing us to sort of rethink these things that were so basic to our our idea of ourselves as a people and uh it's no wonder i think that it's psychologically it's a diff- difficult time and, uh, and i go on a lot about you know extending cognitive empathy to the chinese but i think that we should do the same when it comes to our countrymen in america I mean, we, we we know that it ain't easy to watch yourself to sort of get past <laughs> Alas. Anyway, I want to thank you guys both for carving out so much time to talk about this uh, really great essay. I highly recommend it. Uh, I hope that uh, that we, we have you both back on the show soon. Let's move on out of recommendations. But before we do that, just a really quick reminder uh, to listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by Sup China. And if you like the work that we're doing with Seneca and all the other shows in the Seneca network, please show your support by subscribing to Sup China Access, our daily email newsletter. You'll find it is chock full of great stuff. All right, on to recommendations. Tom, what you got for us?
0: So my recommendation uh, stems from my uh, crippling television addiction and the fact that I think that <laughs> I've, I've, I finished, I felt like we finished Netflix during the course of the pandemic. <laughs> um, so I have been watching uh, relatively uh, over the past couple of weeks um, a bunch of shows from uh, from French TV. Um, oh, great. W- one that you may have heard of is Lupin, which is yeah, a very yeah. good a very good show the 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 second batch of episodes just came out but another one you may not have heard of is called the bureau which is a story oh, I've heard of the bureau yeah 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 uh, it's a story of it's um we're on season 4 right now of the french External security agency and the dramas and personal lives of those within it, and it's a fantastic watch. And there's tons of them, so you can spend weeks on it.
2: Lots of action. I mean, the French do action a, in a very artful way.
0: I it's it's actually it's not bloody at all, um, oh, and okay. it's okay. it's but it's very sus- suspenseful, and uh, the drama is fantastic. Right. And it's also great if you're a failed Europeanist such as myself to listen to the French and read the subtitles, so you can pretend that you understand what they're
1: saying. <laughs>
2: Oh, great. That sounds fantastic. So uh, Lupin and the Bureau. Jessica, what about you? What you got for us?
1: I have two recommendations, both um, highlighting the role of humanity and human dignity in our policy. I've been trying to think about this a lot more as U.S.-China tensions continue to heat up. So the first has nothing to do with China, but uh, is an interview with my colleague Jamila Michener and The Ezra Klein Show. Uh, Just a really stunning uh, interview. Where, and this is, you know, I don't think about the politics of poverty in the United States, but this interview really kind of highlighted some of the kind of almost unstated assumptions that um, drive U.S. policy discussions and political discussions around, you know, what people deserve, um, what you need to do to earn um, benefits in society, what, who, you know, who is the government working for, Um I just can't recommend that interview highly enough. Um, and I've tried, been trying to think about how it is that we center people in U.S.-China relations and we think about U.S. Mm. policy toward Asia more generally. And so in that context, I want to recommend anything that Yang Chung Yang writes. I know that she's written for SubChina and, and a variety of other venues to really highlight you know, the human lives that are at stake Yeah, and the crossroads of this competition, so many of us are hyphenated in different ways, um, and that these are, you know, this is a core difference, um, you know, between the U.S.-China relationship now and, for example, the U.S. relationship with the Soviet Union, is that this? what is interdependence? It's not just about companies doing business. You know, it's also about the students, the scholars, the researchers, the entrepreneurs that, You know, go back and forth, or have in the past gone back and forth, and have these kinds of mixed ties, and it's really difficult. Um, But I think we ought to be bearing in mind our shared humanity uh, as we navigate all of these challenges. Obviously, nations are an important part of the international landscape, and they're kind of unavoidable at this point. Um, But you know, trying to look within them uh, to the lives and the stories inside, I think is just is so important. Um, for anchoring our policy in the values that we you know, are supposedly upholding.
2: Absolutely. Yang Yang, for those of you who don't know her and are not familiar with her writing, uh, Yang Yang Cheng is a particle physicist, actually. She's uh, trained as a particle physicist, and she works with the Large Hadron Collider, the CERN Large Hadron uh, Collider, and writes a column for China and has written, this, as Jessica said, in other venues as well. Uh, but... Uh, her column really started out just really looking at at uh, science and China, and it's really branched out and has become just one of the most—I mean—consistently sort of achingly beautiful. I mean, she is just her prose is really gorgeous, and um, I think uh, we're we're super proud to have her as a columnist for for SubChina. So thanks for that endorsement. So um, as you guys know, on my recommendations, I have to read a lot for the show. I read an awful lot, of, uh, and I'm I've been really trying to figure out what music I can read by. I mean, I love music, and it's just been so hard to combine the two. And it, it's come down basically for me to Bach. I can only listen to and only piano. I can't listen to like cello suites or anything like that. It's it's it, it, it's basically three. Things I can listen to: the Goldberg Variations, the Well-Tempered Clavier, and the French Suites, Uh, and and that's it. But I mean, I have those three just on steady rotation as I read. Um, my wife under, doesn't understand why they don't put me to sleep, but they don't. They actually, fi- I find them to be super stimulating. They're so familiar to me now that I don't need to actually listen carefully. But I feel like they do something synaptically to me when I'm listening. I, I can I feel like I they assist in the reading. So um, those three, uh, piano. And I, I've actually found, everyone listens to, to the Glenn Gould, Goldbergs. They're fine. I mean, there's the old one from the 50s, like 50s. But there's also the the 82 recording. They're fine. I I like them. But the long, long recordings are fantastic. I mean, just listen to them. I mean, he he is not anyone's stereotypical idea of a kind of, you know, Chinese automaton who just mechanically performs. He's, he's so full of verve. I mean, it brings us to Bach, which is pretty straight, you know, 16th music, but anyway, fantastic. Check it out. And then I have another musical recommendation, which is of moving ahead a few centuries, a YouTube channel of a guy named Rick Beato, B-E-A-T-O. I don't know if you've ever seen this guy. This, he does a series called what makes this song great. It's, fantastic. I mean, all, all of his videos are about music, but he dissects individual songs, all of them so well chosen, and crossing so many different genres. I mean, from really, uh, from pop songs to heavy metal, jazz, grunge, everything, everything under the sun. And uh, he somehow has these digital copies of the studio recordings, so he can actually separate individual tracks so he can play Isolated tracks of, of what's happening, so you can hear what the different instruments are doing at, at, in different passages of recordings. And he himself is a phenomenally gifted musician, and he's a really good teacher. So the combination of his deep, you know, knowledge, the theory, production, the actual playing, his enthusiasm, and his charisma—I mean, it makes him it makes him just a just a really compelling uh, presenter. Uh, so just check it out. It's again Rick Beato, B E A T O. It's my favorite thing to watch on YouTube. Anyway, all right. Um, so thanks once again, Jessica and Tom, um, for for uh, for joining me. What a, what a really interesting conversation we've had.
1: Thanks so much, Kaiser. A pleasure.
0: Yeah, this was this was my pleasure. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Jessica. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network.